evening and welcome to Editing Aloud. And I have a most interesting panel this evening, which includes Judge Dennis Davis um, and uh, Professor Kaya Sitole, as well as our usual sterling editing team, Rob Rose and Lucanyo Mnyanda, in a week in which we are expecting next week Tito Mboweni, Finance Minister's revised emergency budget. Um, at this moment, Law Professor Pierre de Force has come out with a proposal for a 100% inheritance tax, which has caused an absolute stir. And Dennis Davis, you have called the proposal absolutely absurd. Can you tell us why? Well, it's absurd to have a 100% on inheritance tax because nowhere in the world has it ever been tried. Um, it, it, it doesn't take account of the fact that you may have children in need. It doesn't take account of a spouse. It doesn't take account of different levels of, of, of wealth. Where do you locate it? It's a real populist piece of nonsense, but that doesn't mean that there isn't merit in the revisiting of the inheritance tax um, situation, uh, Hillary. In other words, let me, let me be blunt. In a country with the levels of inequality that South Africa has, with an overlay of race and class like South Africa has, manifestly intergenerational transmission of wealth is an important question. Whilst I think the 100% is, is, is just pandering to the populist gallery, and it's unfortunate that South Africa now doesn't only have COVID-19, but there's a virus of people who think they're experts about everything. We've got more virologists and epidemiologists in this country than anywhere else in the world. Everybody talks about everything now. And it's, it's unfortunate that that 100% has essentially clouded over what are the merits of clear reinvestigation of inherit, inheritance tax. So I think, for example, that it would be absolutely legitimate, and we have on the Davis Tax Committee called for a revision of estate duty, which is an inheritance tax. I do believe that an inheritance tax should, however, be staggered. So we thought that 15 million should be free because if you work that out and you have a spouse who might well be rather old with no other money, that, you know, that would be a fair sum to have free from estate duty. We then thought that the thing should be between 25 to 35% above that. Upon reflection, seems to me no reason why you shouldn't have uh, a tax of at least 50% over estates of 100 or 200 million, as the case may be. And that I have no problem with. But that then starts getting us into the world of realism. But there's a, there are two other problems about that. If you, if you read Piketty, which the force manifestly had not done, because had he done, he would have actually concentrated on a wealth tax. Piketty does not think that inheritance tax is the way to go for a whole range of reasons, in particular the notion that that wealth is so different today in a digital economy, then um, uh, we would be able, I think we should be thinking about a wealth tax, but we can't do it immediately because we need the data. We need to know what assets are. We don't know that. Uh, SARS could not implement a wealth tax tomorrow morning because it doesn't have the data. So we've recommended that, in fact, a serious investigation about people's assets take place which would test both the income and, and wealth. But in the interim, an estate duty which is serious and which deals with the question of trusts and avoidance and has a staggered increase up to at least 50%, I think, is viable and should be implemented. And we've been thinking, been talking about this for a very long time. And quite frankly, I have no understanding why it hasn't been implemented. Judge, what, what was your estimate in the Davis Tax Committee of how much one could potentially raise through well, such a tax? Well, um, there are various estimates from the time of the, um, of the 
CATS Commission and looking at comparable data, it's never a major winner for all sorts of reasons, but it does, it can bring in between one to two percent of the tax take. Now, if you work that out on the budget, which I know of 220, which has now you know, gone down the toilet, but if you work that out, that could be anything between 14 to 28 billion. So it's a serious sum of money. That is a serious sum of money. Uh, Rob Rose, you've written your column for the Financial May this week on death and taxes. Um, I'm, you don't come to a very, very sharp conclusion about whether we should or shouldn't go with the proposal. Do you think, do you think what, what Judge Davis says is correct, is in that 100% tax isn't doable, but we need to look at how we, how we address inequality in this country. My concern is that is that the money collected by a national treasury doesn't go to address specific issues like inequality. In Piketty's book, he, for example, says that what you do is you collect this money and then, you know, a large portion goes to each individual at the age of 25. So each individual gets something back. In this case, my worry is practicality in the, and execution of ideas is vitally important in South Africa. So I, I just worried that you collect a large amount of tax from people that had a had a massive effect on the um, tax tax morale. Um, and it would go towards funding something like the new SAA. I mean, that's that's my concern, essentially. You just use it to plug other holes in the system. Um, so it doesn't go towards actually addressing the real issue, which is inequality. Um, and yeah. Kaya, Sotoli, Kaya Sotoli, you're going to have a view on it, I have no doubt, when we're talking about <laughs> SOEs and where the money might go that one would raise with such a tax. You, do you want to... Uh, so I think obviously the, the original. What? You want to tell us about SOEs? <laughs> of 100% of taxing of anything is not actually practical because that actually creates an incentive for people to pretend that they have no such a wealth to begin with. So it's like a classic case of people now suddenly pretending that they don't actually have a base on which you can tax them. So 100% is an illogical number. Of course, the question that Judge Davis raises is an old question of whether we think the current regime that has capital gains tax and estate duty is the most equitable one in relation to where we are starting off as a country and what it is that we're trying to achieve. So I do think that a question around issues of intergenerational wealth is definitely an overdue one, but it does dilute the question somehow if it's overtaken by the populist idea that you should have an absolute abolishment of 100% taxes, because then a lot of people are simply going to reject that notion without actually engaging with the substantive question of do we think that we need to relook at the way our wealth is transferred in Rob? No, I mean, I think that's completely correct. We do have to relook at it, but it's almost as if if you take the outlandish notion of 100%, it almost derails the argument because you end up fighting that, that, that actual 100% figure rather than the actual notional idea behind it. Um, it's completely, it's a red herring in terms of this argument. We do need to address inequality and fix this, but that particular solution I don't think will get us very far. Look, I know, sorry, Judge? Were you going to comment? No, no, no. Let Kanya come in first. I'll come Look, in Kanya, I just wanted you to set in context for us um, next week's budget, the, which is called the Supplementary Adjusted Budget, I think, uh, which will simply update February's main budget, which, as the judge said, has sort of gone down the toilet due to the virus and, and, and the economy completely crashing. Um, what are we looking at for next week's budget? And what are the tax issues going to be big issues? 
I mean, I, I would think so, Hillary. Like, actually, I was interested in the discussion you were having before, but you know, about inequality and taxation. We and I think I don't think it's going to come up in this particular case. What also does struck me as well about the, what you were discussing before, the, the issue that like, dealing inequality, whether 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 like you know, like inheritance tax is the way to go. Like, is is that, is that the inequality you worried about the personal trust to the kids? Because that would be inequality ultimately. Look, You've broken up, and, and be, I'm going to stop you for them, and it will come back to you. But, Judge, Lucania has raised the question of is, is uh, inheritance tax the way to go if we, if we step back and say, well, how do we fight inequality? Is, is inheritance tax one of the solutions you would head towards? Well, when I, when I listen to Kaya, if we, in, if we were in the room together and it was pre-COVID, I would have given him a big hug because, because everything he said is absolutely spot on. When you go for popular stuff, it number one, it's not going to get you the kind of money that you want because people will hide it, as he rightly says. In fact, that's the problem. On the, on the revenue side, Hillary, um, we really need a serious audit. There is huge amount. I mean, if you're really worried about intergenerational transfers, we should be worried about the massive amount of tax evasion that is taking place in South Africa. Massive. Right, uh, which is, I think, the biggest way in which we can raise some further funds. I'll get there. But if we're going to talk seriously about inequality, then let's talk about the economic policy that we've adopted for 25 years and ask ourselves why 25 years later inequality has increased rather than reduced. And then ask ourselves what kind of e economic policies can we have? And if you do take Piketty seriously, and I certainly do, then you're starting to look at a whole range of structural questions. You're looking at the question of the nature of property. You're looking at the question of the concentration of wealth, at the process of education, of the absolute disgraceful way in which we have not tran uh, transformed our urban areas uh, so that, 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 in a sense, strange as it may seem and awful as it seem, COVID-19 is borne by the poorest of people because, frankly, they're all living cheek by jowl. All of this is luminous illustration of an utter failure for 25 years of a transformed economic policy which delivers social justice. You're nibbling at the edges when you're talking about inheritance tax. Because even if you were terribly successful and you brought in 30 billion, I agree with Rob, I wouldn't want it to, uh, to, to projects. I would want it to go the transformation of the lives of historically disadvantaged people that I keep on saying are presently disadvantaged, just like they were historically disadvantaged. But, I, but, I, but I, what I'm trying to say is I think this debate is a pity because it should, we should be focusing post-COVID on the kind of reconstructive economic policy that's going to deliver a, 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 an economic system that reduces poverty and inequality, which we have failed to do up to now. That's the real debate. Lucanio, let's give it another try. Um, do you want to just, we're coming up to the break, but do you want to repeat what you were going to say before you were rudely dropped by broadband? Thanks, Hilary. I was going to say exactly what Judge Davis had said. So for me, like, it seems like this debate about inheritance is a bit of a distraction. If I'm thinking when you talk about inequality, a lot of things reinforce inequality. The schools you go to, the networks your parents have. I mean, all sorts of I mean, the idea, like, because, because you don't, it's not nearly, merely the, a check or whatever or property you leave to your kids that set them up. It's, I mean, it's, it's, it's all the other things that happen when from, the, from the day they are born, where they go to school and what kind of social networks they have and who they know. You know? <laughs> so, like, it just seems like a yeah, populist distraction that doesn't really, like, add anything, any value to me in terms of the wider debate about inequality and poverty in this country.
there's a new SOE council which the president has appointed to advise him again on what to do about our state-owned enterprises. I imagine that the Minister of Finance has been fending off a lot of demands for more cash. Um, here we are in the middle of the COVID crisis. Are we thinking in the right way about state-owned enterprises? Look, I think the great difficulty we have with state-owned enterprises is this a philosophical dilemma that the ANC has and its obsession with this idea of a developmental state. And I think the big problem is that they themselves actually have no idea what a developmental state really ought to look like. And the one message that I keep trying to put into the ears of politicians is that if you aren't going to talk about a developmental mandate, this development mandate can only be a byproduct of a stable and a viable economic mandate. So if you compromise on the economic returns that these enterprises are supposed to be generating, well, whatever developmental aspect that you had in mind cannot actually be translated into action because these things have to be economically viable on a standalone basis. And then you can decide for ESCOM, for example, to say if ESCOM is able to generate sufficient revenue, then we can expand the net of people who can actually get basic electricity allocation, for example, on an ongoing basis. And the NC really struggles with the concept of how an entity like Prasa, for example, ought to be managed in order to deliver the economic returns that enable you to actually then implement your developmental mandate. So that's really their biggest dilemma. And I think them putting another council together, again, it's another think tank that the president has put in place in order to defer decision making. I do not imagine that this council is going to come up with anything completely new that nobody has thought about in South Africa before. The question is, on the basis of available data and available inputs, what are you doing about your state-owned enterprises? And putting new people to actually come back with the same conclusion is not going to get us there. So it's extremely frustrating. But of course, that's what we've allowed the government to do for such a long time. They change their faces, they change the names of what it is, but actually nothing of substance is getting done. And this council, for me, represents another iteration of that particular problem. Rob Rose, Financial Mail cover story, I think, this week, uh, touching on some of the same issues about state-owned enterprises. We've, what are you looking at and what are you concluding? Well, we looked at ESCOM specifically and what ESCOM's options are. Um, according to some economists, the kind of hole that it will face from COVID-19 could be as much as $30 billion from various factors, including less usage, um, customers who can't pay what they owe and various things. So it's about what ESCOM's options are and um, and I suppose what Kaya speaks about, the, the willingness to actually address it. I think Kaya's point is completely valid. We have had thousands of think tanks that told us what we should be doing, but there's been no think tank on executing it. So the execution is where it all falls apart. And I think that's been the, the primary issue. Um, we talk a lot about it, but don't actually fix anything. So that's, that's I think, what where, where we are now. Look, can you, ESCOM is going to be one of the SOEs which may or may not have the begging bowl out in the near future. Which are the other SOEs which, uh, which have been asking for money? Um, and how likely is it that they will get it? Well, I think it's probably easier to count the ones that aren't asking for money, in fairness. Like when you think, I mean, we just, just before we go to the show now, we're talking about SAA. And I think, Rob, we're not sure whether it's just 26 billion or 33 billion or, nine or 7 billion, whatever. You know, and when you look at this, 
we've actually closed down our tourism industry. We've closed down our skies and potentially like killing our industry, tourism industry potentially forever. And in the meantime, we want to spend another 20 billion on an airline. I don't know why, where it's supposed to go and who is supposed to fly to. <laughs> a new, Maybe that a could new be airline, thing. yes. At a time when old in airlines are falling yeah. over. Yes. We would know where to fly, obviously, obviously, because our skies are closed. And then, then, then from there, you can go, like, you can go from everywhere, really, from the post office to Denel, to the SABC. I mean, the list is long running. It feels like a long time ago when Governor, I always call him Governor, but the Finance Minister, Tito Moweni, was talking, you know, in February with, with, with this budget that you said is going down the toilet. He was talking then about, you know, winning off these SOEs of the state's support because we couldn't afford them. We couldn't afford them before COVID. So, so I don't know how we can we, we suddenly now can actually afford this when we're looking at, like as you said, we've got a new budget coming up next week, potentially catastrophic numbers for growth, catastrophic numbers for the deficit. So where are we going to find money for all these SOEs on top of that? Who knows? <laughs> Judge, can I ask you about the money question in, in your role as the, as the chair of the Davis Tax Committee? I mean, what... Um, without giving anything away, how bad is the hit to tax going to be? And are there any taxation kind of solutions to, to the enormous hole in the budget? Very, yes. Let me, let me put out what is in the public domain and, and one can draw the dots. Um, the, minister, sorry, the Commissioner of Inland Revenue uh, indicated not that long ago that he thought the shortfall would be $285 billion, right? So... Let's just work with that figure, round it up to 300 billion so it's easier to work with. So there's no way you're going to find 300 billion uh, through tax uh, increases. I mean, not a, not, a, not a hope in hell. I mean, and, and, and you wouldn't be able to do that in the good times. And you certainly don't want to do it now, do you? And so if you went through all the taxes, where would you be able to do it? You can't really put up that because, you know, politically that would be dire. It would also be retrogressive. Um, if you... Corporate taxes, whatever you do, not going to bring a hell of a lot because of the pressure of the economy. And the same is true about capital gains tax, because people are going to be claiming losses, not gains, because of what's happening with property and the, and the share market. So, so where, what do you have left? Income tax. But you've got a fairly narrow base on that as well. It's certainly not going to get you anywhere near there. So to be blunt with you, the only source of, of money, and you can't predict it, is the sort of what we've been trying to work on, which is the tax gap which I keep on saying is unbelievably high. It's north of 50 billion, significantly north of 50 billion. Um, that again, even if it was 100 billion, still means you'd be short of 185 billion. So, so what I'm trying to suggest to you is that the solutions here are going to have to be, one, much better collection, and two, serious examination on the expenditure side rather than the revenue side, because there is nothing on the revenue side to actually do. So the budget is really a no-brainer in that sense, because other than borrowing and reduction of expenditure, there is no money available of any significant proportions to generate revenue on that side. So the earlier debate that you're all having is terribly important, which is the debate about how, what do you do about the SOEs. And I myself felt rather desperate when I saw that they were about to do nuclear again, when it's perfectly obvious that if we do IPPs, which is a no-brainer, there is significant money from the green funds all over the world that can actually be sourced. The, 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 the argument is that you can probably generate a quarter of a million new jobs and retrain some of the coal miners. And there is a serious avenue for the kind of thinking that we have to have. I have sympathy, for example, 
with the idea that we have to have an airline for domestic travel because I understand Comair are also in business risky. But I would have thought some imaginative combination of Comair and SAA would have been the way to go, which is clearly not going to happen. So what I'm trying to say is we're going to have to think laterally on the expenditure side because there is nothing on the revenue side that can save us. So, you know, and I'm not giving anything away. That's in the public domain, and that's all I've had liberty to speak on. But I think you can draw those those conclusions yourself. It's a dire situation. Kaya Satoli, where do we cut? Where should we be cutting apart from the SOEs? Well, I think the main problem that we have is that we have to, if we believe the finance minister, even as far back as February, he had already given us really a shoestrings budget. There wasn't any fat left over for him to entertain now and say, let's cut that off. So that's, of course, if we are to believe what we were told previously. And in the previous budget, he told us that for as far as it's concerned, the only avenue is to cut the public service wage bill, for example, by over 160 billion rand in the medium term. Now, that is what was put on the table. And of course, we know that that's already a matter that's under litigation because the unions are claiming that he ambushed them by firstly putting it as a conversation in February and then failing to implement the agreed increase at the beginning of April. So that's what here. And that is for me probably the easiest place to cut. But of course, politically, it's very delicate. It is very sensitive because it translates to more people joining the unemployment queue. And when you already have a pre-existing unemployment crisis, it's difficult to imagine how anyone would say, finance minister, go ahead, cut some public jobs in the civil service. In the alternative, however, remember the big problem is that the baseline for the wage bill that the government has put together is a 2018 wage agreement which promised above inflation increases. Now, luckily, and perhaps completely inadvertently, we now know that our inflation expectations are much lower than what they were in 2018. So there'll be some form of saving there compared to what we thought it the cost might be in 2018. But even that will not be sufficient to rescue us from this. So they have to revisit that wage bill, uh, that wage bill agreement. And if it calls for a general strike, then that's perhaps the task that they're going to have to bite, uh, the bullet they're going to have to Rob Rose? That, all of that we knew even before COVID. Now we've got the economy tanking and we've got extra spending, which the president has promised as COVID relief and stimulus. So where's that going to come from? And where is spending going to be allocated from? Where should it be reallocated from? No, well, you're right. I mean, all the speakers are absolutely correct. There's really only two places where you'll get the majority of the of the spending cuts, because spending cuts are the only real solution. Tax won't work at this point. Um, and, you know, uh, uh, like the judge and Kaya said, it's essentially it's SOEs and it's the public sector wage bill. Those are the two big areas. Um, but the problem to me seems to be that the ANC's economic policy at the moment seems to be geared towards believing there's a role for greater intervention in the economy and greater spending. And I think that there is a, there's a philosophical rift coming um, within the ANC and EC about the direction of the economy. And I think that years of kicking the ball down the road without actually dealing with it um, are about to come to a head. Look, Anya, we did have the ANC offering, uh, uh, proposing recently that there be greater state guidance. Is that, is that the way forward out of the crisis? But great state guidance, I mean, that would be a great thing if you, have, if you have a capable state that does actually quite knows what it's doing. <laughs> from, what, from what the guys are saying there, like, I mean, one another, I suppose, like, you know, you can always go with these new monetary theories that says not much deficits don't matter. <laughs> and of course, there's going to be a debate about the Reserve Bank. And like, I mean, I see, like, the whole QE debate has taken a different message or different tone. People are basically saying the Reserve Bank should nearly print money in order to fund the deficit. 
And I'm assuming that the governor will probably be addressing that tomorrow, actually. He's got this, he's got this, this lecture adverts where he's going to be talking about monetary policy and coronavirus. And I'm, and I'm thinking like maybe there's, there's one of these issues that, that he will have to address or just push back against. Like, I mean, there are some dangerous ideas coming across because people don't really want to make the tough decisions that the judge and Rob and Kaya have been talking about. So now we're coming up with yeah, some really Man Monetize the deficit, print money, as it were. We'll hear more, yeah. I'm sure, uh, both tomorrow from the Reserve Bank Governor, but also next week. Um, that is all we have time for this evening, but please join us again for another edition of Editing Aloud. Stay safe. <laughs>